All right, open your Bibles to Kings, 1 Kings. So we are going to cover, try and cover both 1 and 2 Kings tonight. Um, let's pray, and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your word again tonight, which we can study and give us eyes to see things in here as we take a big picture view of your working through the nation of Israel and specifically recounting uh, the history of the kings. Lord, help me to communicate these things clearly. Uh, give us a greater love for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been like over a month, right, since we, since we last met. Um, so I thought, let's just back up for just a minute and talk a little bit about where we were. Last time we met, we, were going, we, we went through First and Second Samuel. You remember we're in the section of the Old Testament that we call the Prophets. Okay, so you have in the Jewish Bible, the law, or the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The prophets are divided into two sections, former prophets and latter prophets. The former prophets are, again, primarily historical narrative. These are the events that happened in the life of the nation of Israel, starting with Joshua, so the conquest, through the monarchy. So tonight, we're going to conclude, really, the history of the nation of Israel, which if you think about, um, about that, we still have a lot of the Old Testament left, and we've essentially covered most of the history of the nation. So that means the second half that we're going to move into, the latter prophets, is going to be primarily prophetic commentary on all the events we've just read about. So when we're going to go through next, I think next week will be in Jeremiah. Um, as we get into the latter prophets, we're going to see how those prophets, they coincide with time periods that we'll be looking at tonight. Okay, So that's kind of where we're, where we're headed um, as far as uh, what we'll be doing doing next. Samuel, you recall, really uh, set forth the establishment of the monarchy, so there was a lot of time spent on David. That's almost what the entire book is, except for First Samuel, right? We have uh, a good portion, or a, a, an amount of time spent on Saul, but then a lot of it's spent on Saul and David and that war between them. So we see clearly that David is the king that Yahweh has chosen, that has set on the throne of Israel, and then from him now comes all the other kings that we will, we will see. Well, not all of them, but all the ones that will be in Judah, okay? Um, the other thing, and we'll touch on this more in just a minute, but remember Deuteronomy 17 is super critical when we're thinking about the role of kings in Israel and their responsibilities. There's the instructions that the Lord gave through Moses. This is how a king in Israel is to act and behave. So we're going to reference that in a minute. But just as, you're, as we go through, through kings, you want to keep that always in the back of your mind. What's a king in Israel supposed to be like? And when a king in Israel is failing, we can usually trace it back to something that was missed here. Um, I just want to talk for a minute about the experience of reading Kings. Um, I like logical, sequential things, right? That's just how my brain works. I'm an outline kind of guy. So Kings is very logical in that sense, right? You had this king, he reigned for this long, and then he died, and then this king reigned. That's, you know, so that's kind of how the book, book works. But there are some major turning points that we also need to, to note. Um, the first one is the division of the kingdom. We will talk about that when we get to chapter 12. That is a major shift in the book and in the life of the nation. Uh, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, which is uh, right in the middle 
So First and Second Kings is, of course, just one book, but it was split because it couldn't fit into one scroll, just like with Samuel and Chronicles. It's all one book. Uh, but Elijah and Elisha, really, they take, it's, you could divide the book up into, into thirds. They take the middle third. So they, that's an important uh, turning point in the book. The exile of the northern kingdom and then the exile of the southern kingdom. So those are all the significant points in the book that you're kind of looking out for as you're working way working your way through. Of course, each king that we, we meet, uh, we're introduced, we're given a brief summary of who they are, uh, who they are descended from, how long they reigned, where they reigned from, and then you have that uh, commentary from the writer, whether they were good or evil. And the one thing that you'll note, as the kingdom is divided, kings are always compared to how they, uh, kings of Judah at least, are always compared to how they reigned, like David or not, Right? So he walked in the ways of David his father or did not walk in the ways of David his father because David is the, the standard, so to speak. And then when the kingdom is split, there's Jeroboam, who's the first king in Israel. All the kings will be compared to him. Right? Did they continue to follow in the practices of Jeroboam or not? Okay? Now, the initial readers, again, whenever, just like, well, let me back up here. Pastor Jess was talking this morning that our goal in Matthew is to make us better readers of Matthew as we're teaching through it. The same thing I'm trying to do with Old Testament survey. Help us become better readers of the Old Testament and enjoy it more, right? Oftentimes it's a slog because we don't understand who these people are, what the historical events are. So we want to um, understand that better. So we want to think about who the initial readers, again, of all these books are. So for kings, the initial readers would have been, and we're going to have to give away the ending, but it would be the exiled Jews. Okay, so the book is going to end with, with Israel and Judah, so two kingdoms, both exiled and removed from the land. So what happened in Joshua has now been undone, right? There's, there are essentially nobody left living in the land. So the initial audience would have been those Jews living in Babylon, under the rule probably of Nebuchadnezzar or well, or, or a later ruler, right? So if you're thinking kind of in the time period of Daniel, but a little later than Daniel, probably, um, that's your initial reader. So you're, you're a Jew living not in the promised land, not in your homeland. You don't have a king, a Jewish king ruling over you. You might be going, how did I get here? Why, am I, why are we as a nation where we're at? And so that's what the book of Kings is going to help us do. And if you think about Historical moments don't arise out of a, of a vacuum, right? The historical moment that we're living in in the United States didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a series of events that have led us to the place where we're at. So the same thing with the nation of Israel. These Jews just didn't end up in ex- exile one day for no reason at all. There's a series of events, a series of sins and rebellions against the Lord that have led them to where they're at, Okay. Now, Kings is going to take place over a period of about 400 years. So we're condensing 400 years of history into, what are we, 46 chapters, something like that. So uh, quite a, Kings itself is a brief survey of the nation of Israel. There's a lot to be left, that is left out. Um, the purpose of the book. The book of Kings is a history of the nation of Israel viewed through the lens of the monarchy. So we're, we're looking specifically at the monarchy, the leader, the, that kingly leader in Israel. Not only is it giving us the historical accounts, but it provides a covenantal evaluation of the kings of Israel and Judah. Okay, So what this means is that each leader in Israel is going to be evaluated by how did you obey the covenant or not? Remember, Israel is a covenantal 
people, a covenanted nation that they have agreed at Sinai. You remember they entered into the covenant with the Lord. The Lord says, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my, my priest, my ambassadors upon the earth. All you've said, Lord, we will do. And so they are held accountable to that, that covenant. Kings are going to be evaluated on how they led the people to obey the covenant, how they battled against idolatry. That's a primary theme. Um, because idolatry is the thing that will steal the people away from covenant faithfulness, right? They go after false gods, and they're not worshiping the true, the true God. Um, there's three uh, important themes, and I'll try and make these brief so we can get into the, the book itself. But three important themes that we need to keep in mind as we understand what is happening in Kings. First of all, Yahweh has made Israel into the nation they are. We can, it, is, it is Yahweh's right and prerogative to work with his, to, to judge his people as he has said he would do, right? He has redeemed them. He has um, made them his own special nation. It's, he's not unjust in his actions, Right, so when we see him finally sending them into exile, we can't sit back and go, well, that's unfair. It's not. It, they are his people. Uh, Israel is over and over called to be singularly devoted to the worship of Yahweh because of what he has done for them. And so when they sin against that, they are bringing judgment upon themselves. Um, they are a covenantal people, as we've already already touched on. In that covenant, there are there are blessings for obedience. There is a cursing for disobedience. And then thirdly, Israel's leaders, like Israel's people, are to be wholly committed to the monotheistic worship of Yahweh. Okay? The kings of, of Israel were not to be like the kings of the other nations. They're not to be going after all the other gods. They are not a god in and of themselves. They are really, and if we think about what David did and what David instructs Solomon to do, they are priestly kings in many ways. They are helping to lead the worship of the nation, okay? Um, The other uh, important characters in the book are the prophets, specifically Elijah and Elisha, um, and they are the most committed worshipers of Yahweh, right? So they are speaking forth Yahweh's word. They are declaring his message to the people, and they are always, again, interpreting it through the lens of the covenant, if something's going wrong, if, you're, uh, if, if the enemies are coming in and plundering you, if there's famine, if there's drought, why? It's, you, it's a sin-related issue, and so they are bringing light to, to that. Okay, All right, so let's walk through um, the book in the outline form that I have. The first four chapters is, um, I'm entitled, A New King in Israel. We see a transition from David to Solomon. The book essentially picks up where... Samuel left off. There's a time gap because it says at the beginning, David is old and advanced in years. So a number of years, years later, his successor needs to be named because he's going to die. So what happens is that David's son Adonijah, you see in verse 5, uh, uh, declares himself to be the king. Um, but he is not the one that Yahweh has chosen. And I, I, I was thinking about this. Uh, there's a Two other instances I could think of of self-proclaimed kings in Israel. The one was Gideon's son. You remember uh, when they went in Judges, when they wanted to make Gideon king, he said, no, not me. And later his son was like, well, I'll do it. And he goes and kills all his brothers. It didn't end very well for him. And the other one was David's uh, other son, uh, Absalom, right? That he went and 
won the hearts of the people, uh, but he also died. So self-proclaimed kings in Israel never meet a good end. And Adonijah will not be king either. Uh, Solomon is the one that the Lord has chosen, and his name means literally beloved of the Lord. And he is the son of Bathsheba. So chapter 1 recounts kind of the political and practical maneuvering by David and Bathsheba and others uh, to make sure that Solomon gets on the the throne. David intervenes to make sure that he is anointed instead of Adonijah. In chapter 2, you have David's instructions to this new king. And the thing that you should notice front and center, uh, look at verses 1 through 4, is his the, the centrality of right worship, the centrality of the, the word of God, of the Torah. So chapter 2, verse 1, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Okay, so the, the primary focus of a king in Israel was this, right? Be a devoted worshiper of Yahweh, right? Keep, keep the law of the Lord uh, in front of you all the time. And then notice as well the end there in verse 4, that, that, that reminder of the Davidic covenant that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord came to David and said, or, well, David said, I want to build you a house. And the Lord said, I will build you a house. I will establish your descendants on the throne of Israel, and, and they need to be faithful in walking with me, and I will, I will bless them. Okay? So uh, we see that instruction uh, chapter 3, we see Solomon loves the Lord and walks in the statutes of his father David. That's what chapter 3, uh, verse 13 says, or 3, 3 says, sorry. But there are um, cracks in the foundation, if we could say it that way, beginning to appear. David, or Solomon makes a marriage alliance with the king of, or with Pharaoh in Egypt. He marries his daughter, uh, which is not something he should have done. Um, he also sacrifices at the high places. Remember, those were not, Israel was not to worship Yahweh in any way they chose. There was one place of worship, the temple, but there's always the high places, which were originally like the pagan worship sites, and they would go and worship at those places. They were not to do that. Solomon is doing that, though. The Lord, however, chapter 3, verse 9, blesses Solomon, uh, tells him that he will give him whatever he asks. So Solomon uh, does what he is what we know him for, right? He asked the Lord for wisdom. How can I govern this great people? I need your wisdom. And so the Lord blesses him with that. He's pleased with that request. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13, he grants him not only wisdom, but abundant riches. And then you'll notice in chapter 3, he renews uh, or, or restates the promise made to David. Just as the Lord said to David, I will establish your house. So the same thing is said to Solomon. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 4, uh, look at like verses 20 through 21. We see kind of a, some summaries of what life was like under the rule of Solomon. Uh, twenty twenty one. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And look at verse 25. 
And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig fig tree all the days of Solomon. And look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. So you just see here, again, this is like, this is a pinnacle of the kingdom. And I think that, especially for those initial readers who are living outside the land, not in this kind of kingdom, this is a pretty stark contrast, right? They don't see this. They don't experience this. Um, Notice as well, even like what uh, was in verses 20 and 21, that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. I think that's got to be a direct uh, correlation to the promise the Lord made to Abraham that I'll make your descendants as many as the sand, right? So we see that coming to pass. Here is Israel in the land being uh, a new uh, Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. The land is flourishing. They are flourishing, right? The Lord's promises is coming true, okay? Probably close to 400, right? So, I mean, we're the... It'd probably be around 400 years. No, right. Right, yeah. I mean, they probably would have ideas of who Solomon was, but, uh, but this would be a pretty far cry from what they would have known. So that's, that's the beginning of the reign of Solomon. In chapters 5 through 9, we have a new place of worship. So remember, David desired to build a temple for the Lord. And we will see in, in Chronicles where David will say to Solomon, I could not do that because I was a man. The Lord said I was not to do that because I was a man of blood. Uh, he was a warrior, David was, and he had shed too much blood. Um, but in, when we get to Chronicles, we'll see David has done a lot of preparatory work. He has gathered a lot of the things needed. Solomon's the one who kind of puts it together. So chapter 5, verse 4, Solomon, it says, has rest from his enemies, so it's now time to take on this project. He gathers nearly 200,000 men to, to build this. Eh, this is a monumental task. Um, notice chapter 6, uh, verses 11 through 13, uh, the, the blessing that comes to Israel when they are obedient is that they have the presence of the Lord dwelling in their midst. Right, the same thing in the remember the, the the Israel's camp as they're wandering in the wilderness is centered around the tabernacle and the presence of the Lord dwelling there. Again, that's why no unclean people can be in the midst in the midst of the camp because the Lord walks among them. So as a nation, the Lord has chosen to make his presence dwell here in this temple, and they get that blessing as they walk in accordance with the word or with the Lord. Okay, uh, chapter eight. We see the dedication of the temple. The ark is brought into the comp- into the into the temple. Look at eight verse five. There's innumerable sacrifices made. Uh, the king, chapter eight verse five. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. That's an you know like that's that's usually there's you know some estimation as to how many you know. Because there are other times where they, they're slaughtering thousands. And here they're like, we couldn't even keep track, right? So this is what's happening on the, the day of the dedication. And then we see Solomon's prayer of dedication. It starts like in verse 12 and then down in verse 22. Um, and there's a couple of things that I want to point out that I think are really important. So notice verse 15. The completion of the temple is a reminder of the Lord fulfilling his word to David. Right? The Lord has said, he's promised this. And now it's been fulfilled. 
Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 21. Uh, the centrality of the covenant which the Lord made with Israel. So he's saying, here in the ark are the stone tablets. These are the covenant. Right? These are the words the Lord has said, which we have agreed to. This is central to our life and to our worship. Uh, look at 8.23, where Solomon is praying, and he's saying, There is no God like Yahweh. Uh, all the gods of the nations do not compare to him. Look at 8.27, The blessing of having the uncontainable Yahweh make his presence reside in this place. You know, um, the Lord's cannot be contained to one place, and he understands that. And so he's saying this is a blessing that he has chosen to make his place, his presence dwell here. Um, like, look at uh, chapter 8, verse 30. Yahweh is a forgiving God. And then when we get to verse 31, all the way down through, through 53, the prayer shifts, and it's instructive and prophetic. So he's, he's, he's telling the people, like, when you, when you sin— you know, when you look to this house, the Lord will hear and forgive. Um, so he says, like, when the people are defeated, when there is drought and famine, they need to repent of their sin and turn to the Lord. So he's, he's, he's instructing them. This is, this is how life should function for you. Um, there's a prediction of the people re- rebelling. Look at chapter 8, verse 46. If they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So here he's looking forward to really where the end of the book is going to be, right? This is a people in captivity. They should hear this word, right? Repent. Turn to the Lord. Also, Solomon has very long sentences, right? That is a, <laughs> this is like a Pauline sentence right there. There's no, no periods in there. Um, notice also, this is, the, I think, really cool. Verse 41 through 43, the presence of the temple and Yahweh's dwelling is to be a light to all the nations. So it's talking about when foreigners come and they're going to see the glory of Yahweh. That's the goal. That's God's goal, right? Is that the whole earth would be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so here, even in, in this, this temple being built, we see that coming to pass. And then we get to chapter 9, and the first part of chapter 9 is important. Um, The Lord appears again to Solomon and reiterates the promise first made to to David that if he walks before the Lord uh, and obeys him, his throne will be established just as, as David was promised. But if his children turn from the Lord, go off into idolatry, then Israel will experience judgment. Uh, They will uh, be cut off from the land, and they will be cut off from worship at the temple. So that's important because that leads us into chapter 10, and what I've entitled the demise of Solomon. So chapter 10 and chapter 11, Solomon's end does not begin as well as it it does not end as well as it began, right? So it begins with uh, his devotion to the Lord and, and 
great heights, but it doesn't end so well, okay? Um, Deuteronomy 17, which I, I touched on earlier, says this, kings in Israel must not acquire many horses for himself. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. What did Solomon have? All of the above, right? Look at, uh, yes, 11.3. Yeah, right, yeah, 700, uh, 300 wives and 700 concubines, right? He was a busy man. Uh, the writer of Kings is, I think, clearly trying to point out how Solomon failed in this task. A look at 11.4, for when Solomon was old, his, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not holy, true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So because of Solomon, uh, he, he becomes an idolater, and so the Lord is going to bring judgment on him. Uh, you see that in 11.11, he, the Lord comes and says, the kingdom will be torn from you, but for the sake of your father, David, I will not tear the kingdom away from you in your lifetime, but in your son's. And because of my covenant, the Lord says, that I've made with David, I will not tear the entire kingdom, but I will leave you one tribe that you will rule over. Okay? So remember, Israel is uh, composed of 12 tribes. Uh, so we are going to see this division happen uh, under Rehoboam. Okay? So that leads us to chapter 12, and we're introduced to Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. Uh, Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king, and under his reign we see the Lord's word of judgment come to pass. And this comes about through Rehoboam's listening to foolish counsel. So, um, And Chronicles will bring this out more, but Solomon really, the temple was not his only building project. He also, well, and Kings also brings this out too, built a huge house. He's really, uh, you know, employed, what, 200,000 men, if not even more in all these other projects. And so that the, his hand was heavy upon the people. And so when Solomon dies, the people come to Rehoboam and they say, lighten the burden upon us. And Rehoboam, instead of trying to win the favor of the people, uh, listens to foolish counsel of the younger counselors that says, you should increase the burden on them, really, really whip them into shape. And so because of this, the people rebel against against Rehoboam. Uh, but this happens, where it says, um, uh, 12.15, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Abijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So this is the word of the Lord. This is how God has purposed to accomplish his plan is through Jeroboam listening to this foolish counsel. So in chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, we see that the, the, the kingdom is divided. We have ten, the 10 northern tribes are the ones that now rebel, and they're going to go establish their own kingdom. Okay? Uh, the one tribe that is left with the, the throne of David is the tribe of Judah, right? because that is the tribe from which uh, David is from. And then we will also see that Benjamin will join as well. And then, uh, of course, the other tribe that wouldn't really be a part of this would be the Levites because they didn't have a specific land for themselves. But look at 12, 19 through 20. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Now, this is 
one of the, this is a really important event to keep in mind in the life of Israel. Okay, there are tectonic plate shifts in the Old Testament. So the Exodus is one, Sinai is one, uh, entering the land would be one, and now this, the division of the, the nation is really important. And, and this, is, this is where I think, at least for me, I, I used to probably get lost and not understand what was going on like in the prophets, because you're going to hear Israel, Judah, Ephraim, who are these people? Well, you have to remember you have two kingdoms that are now being dealt with. Okay, so if we're talking about Judah, we're talking about the southern kingdom ruled by the descendants of David. If we're talking about Israel, we're talking about the northern kingdom. Think the more rebellious tribes, and they're often called in the prophets Ephraim. Right? Oh, Ephraim, how could I give you up? Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember the two sons of Joseph? Uh, and so they have that portion. And I, if I recall right, that's like the northernmost territory. Maybe that's why it's often referred to in that way, okay? So whenever we move forward now in kings and then in the prophets, we have to take into context what kingdom is being spoken to, who is being addressed. And then the same thing with the prophets. What prophet, uh, who did they primarily minister to? So when we get to Elijah and Elisha, they're primarily ministering to that northern kingdom, to, to what we would call Israel, okay? There are other times, though, where you're reading the context and you're going to see Israel and you're going to see it referring to the whole nation, right? So it gets really confusing, right? But yeah, that's where context is, context is key. Um, so over the remainder of the book now, you're going to see these two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is going to last for about 200 years. Uh, you're going to have about 20 different kings and 10 different dynasties, right? So 10 different family houses ruling. Uh, in the southern kingdom... That kingdom's going to last for a period of 400 years, and every single king in the southern kingdom will come from the house of Judah, from the line of, of David. Okay? Now, we need to talk about Jeroboam. We are introduced to him back in chapter 11. Uh, we see in chapter 11, verse 26, he was an was adversary of Solomon, who the Lord raised up and was uh, chased out of the kingdom down to Egypt. He comes back. We see that the Lord... Uh, look at 1131, uses the prophet Ahijah, and he tells Jeroboam that, this, that the kingdom is going to be torn from Solomon. And, and what the Lord does is, through Ahijah, makes a promise to Jeroboam that if you obey me and follow in my steps, I will establish your house forever. Right? So he's essentially making the same promise to Jeroboam, to Jeroboam that he made to David. So uh, David's house would be established. If Jeroboam walks in the ways of the Lord, his house and his uh, dynasty would be established forever. You can see that in 1138. So this Jeroboam is, is a well-known figure in Israel. That's why, and he was a leader, warrior type. So that's why he is anointed the king in chapter 12, verse 20. Right. All Israel heard Jeroboam had returned. They sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. So that's the ten northern, northern tribes. Um, however, as we already mentioned, the Lord has left a lamp in Jerusalem, and that is the tribe of, of Judah. Now, Jeroboam, the problem that we see with him is, uh, look down in 1225, he becomes king, and he completely disregards the the word of the Lord through Ahijah, and his first act as king is to do what? Set up idols, right? So he establishes the golden calf worship. Um, 
And he does this in chapter 12 and verse 27. He does this specifically to keep the people from turning and going back to Jerusalem and worshiping Yahweh at the temple, right? Because his fear is, well, if they go down to Jerusalem, they might not want to be a part of our little kingdom here, so we got to keep them from going down there, so we'll just establish a worship practice here. However, uh, what we see in in, uh, chapter 14 and verses 7 through 11, well, and it's prophesied in 1333, uh, because of Jeroboam's sin, his house will now be cut off. So the Lord had said, if you obey me, your house will be established forever, but because you have disobeyed me, now your house will be cut off. So he is not going to get the privilege of having um, a kingdom that is established forever, okay? Um, the, there's a couple of things that stand out to me as I think about Jeroboam, um, and, and I think it illustrates a crucial point with all of Israel's failed kings, and it's this. They miss their reason for existence. They're not like other kings. Their concern is not, first and foremost, their kingdom and establishing their throne. What does the Lord say to like David and to Jeroboam? If you follow me, who's going to establish your throne? I will. The Lord will. You don't got to be concerned about that. But what does Jeroboam do? His first idea, I got to make sure these people don't abandon me, and I'm going to do it through the way that I see see fit, right? So they are, um, the kings in Israel are to be Yahweh's servants, right? They are like his vice regents. They are, this is not their kingdom, it's his kingdom, right? And, and they are uh, placed where they are by him. Um, think about even the, the capital of Jerusalem is the place where Yahweh has chose to make his name dwell, not the king's, right? Uh, Yahweh's name is, is more important, okay? So kings in Israel and Judah that fail, they fail because they forget their job, and they, they seek to establish their name uh, and their place first. So from here we go into chapter 15, and we see kings in Israel and Judah. And this is what we are probably most familiar with in the book of Kings, where we get this succession of kings back and forth. Um, the, and I, I've put, I think, the chart in your notes there, because uh, we're not going to touch on all of these, or very many of them, because we don't have time. Uh, but first of all, we have the kings in Judah, and then the kings in Israel, and, and they're, they're put there next to, so you can see kind of when they ruled at the same time, because that's also how the writer of kings does it. You know, you're introduced to this king in Judah, and then during his reign, this king in Israel is happening. And then this guy's going, and then here comes a king in Judah, and they kind of go back and forth, Okay. So you can just look at those. You have Rehoboam and then Jeroboam in Israel. Then we go back to Judah and Abijam and Asa. They are ruling while Jeroboam is the king in Israel. Look at chapter 15 and verse 4. This is um, important as we think about Abijam and, and then Asa. Abijam specifically, though, who was not a worshiper of Yahweh or not devoted to the Lord. He was like Rehoboam. Uh, look at this, 15.4. Nevertheless... For David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. So we're seeing the Lord's faithfulness to that covenant he made with David in spite of faithless bad kings. Right? So the Lord is always faithful to his, his promises. <coughs> uh, we jump ahead to uh, chapter 16, and we get to Ahab. So Ahab is uh, 
a king that is a lot of spaces devoted to him, right? So he's the king in Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, he was a very evil and wicked father, uh, or a king more wicked than his father. Look at chapter 16 and verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he, he expands the uh, idolatrous practices of the northern kingdom, not just from the golden calf cult, but to the worship of Baal as well. And his wife is a primary um, participant in, in that. And then we are introduced to, in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, all the way to 2 Kings chapter 8, Elijah and Elisha. And this is where we really see uh, Ahab interacting with Elijah, uh, primarily. Um, so we, our attention is shifted away from, from, uh, from the kings to these prominent prophets. Um, and and I don't, I'm not going to cover all the events that happen here, but I, I think we need to just think about why the author of Kings is spending so much time on the ministry of the prophets in a book about kings, right? And here's a couple of, of uh, points I think that we should take from that. First of all, prophets are Yahweh's mouthpieces to a rebellious people and their kings. So the lesson to exiled Israel is, don't disregard them. You know, it, we're going to get to, uh, especially as we get into the 12 minor prophets, these are men sent from the Lord prophesying to a people in exile, instructing them what to do. Don't disregard them. And there were people saying, don't listen to these prophets, right? There's that temptation to do that. So they should take a lesson from Elijah and Elisha in this, this time period. Don't disregard them. Secondly, the prophets demonstrated that kings in Israel were not absolute monarchs. They are accountable to the king, right? They are accountable to Yahweh. So the prophets are the ones that are coming in, uh, which this would be actually a really terrible job, right? In this sense, like, you know, you got to go before the king who has the power and authority to kill you and say, like, you're not doing what's right. And, and uh, so that would not be, not be fun. But they were, they were demonstrating they were subservient to, they were accountable to Yahweh. Um, Elijah, this is the third point, Elijah in particular shows there's always a faithful believing remnant. Uh, you remember we'll see Elijah uh, after fleeing from, from Jezebel and he's hiding in the cave and he's, the Lord appears to him and what are you doing? I alone, I alone am left. And the Lord says, no, there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's an important thing to, rem- to remember as we look at the history of a nation that is largely recounting their failures and the sins. And we think, does anybody believe the promises the Lord has made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Uh, is anybody obeying the law? Uh, well, I think Elijah and then all these other faithful, faithful Jews um, there, there are many of them. And so those living in exile should also be encouraged. Hey, we're part of that remnant, right? We want to be faithful to that. Um, Elijah, we see his name as he, as he comes on the scene. Uh, his name literally means Yahweh is my God. He just appears in chapter 17, kind of out of nowhere, and announces to Ahab there's going to be a drought. Uh, and he's right, does not reign for three years. And this is an attack on Baal because Baal, they thought, controlled the forces of nature. Wow, it is 545, and we are not even second kings. We'll speed up, okay? Uh, 
So we see some significant things, of course, in chapter 18, the showdown on Mount Carmel, where uh, uh, Yahweh is shown to be, to be the true God. Um, we see in chapter 19, Elisha is uh, established, or is, is, is uh, anointed to be the next, the successor of, of Elijah. He is, uh, and then in, flip it, we'll go to 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, Elijah dies. And this is an important thing. Elijah, of course, he does not see death, right? He is carried up into heaven in the chariots of fire. Uh, Elijah is powered with a double portion of his spirit, so he continues to carry the word of the Lord. And Elijah's ministry is different from Elisha's in a sense, or at least what we have recorded. A lot of Elijah's stuff seemed to to deal with uh, the worship of Baal and Ahab. Elijah's ministry is a lot more... um, Various miraculous events, right? Healings, uh, poisonous stew that is being taken care of, the axe head that is caused to float. Just a little bit, uh, well, think about uh, Naaman, right? The cleansing of the leper. It's a little bit different um, ministry in in general. But I want you to know, look at chapter 2, um, verse 12. So Elijah is being taken up. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. And then in chapter 13 and verse 14, the same thing is said about Elisha. And I think it was um, uh, Stephen Dempster that brought this out. So if you're reading his, or no, it was uh, Paul House, sorry, different guy, um, brought out that that phrase is really uh, unique if you think about the role of the prophets. What do you need chariots and horsemen for if you're a nation? War, protection, defense, right? So what's happening here is that Elisha is recognizing that actually Israel's greatest defense is obedience to Yahweh, and it's the prophets, right? And then uh, it's going to be the, the king later, I can't remember his name in chapter, 2 Kings chapter 13, that says this about Elisha, and he's not even a faithful king, right? They recognize that, that, that these prophets and the promises of God and obedience to them, that's Israel's greatest defense, and so uh, kind of a, a, a unique uh, description and recognition of what these men are given to them. Um, they are, if you think about this, they are the reason that Israel is not destroyed. Right? They're, they're, they are a preserving element uh, where the Lord continues to um, forbear with his people even as they rebel against him. Um, one other quote I'll share here from, this is from Jim Hamilton. So if you think about, there's a number of events that happen in Elisha and Elijah's um, lives. Prophetic words come true. Um, kings murdered when, when Israel thought that they were going to, to come and conquer them. Uh, when well, one of the kind of funny, if you have a sick sense of humor, stories when uh, the boys are mocking Elisha after he has uh, been anointed prophet, and they come out and a bear mauls them. Right, go up, you bald head! Vroom! Right, don't make fun of a prophet. Uh, so different things like that: the providing of the oil for a widow so she can pay her debts, the raising of the the Shunammites, 
woman's son. All of these things, James Hamilton in, encapsulates it, and he calls them uh, like various pictures, something like that that we see of these prophets. He says, what's going on here is that they testify to the truth of God's word. And the prophets, they testify to the futility of relying upon anything other than Yahweh. They testify that Yahweh faithfully judges those who reject his word, and they testify that Yahweh saves those who trust in his word and rely on him for deliverance. Okay, so that's the prophets. That's the middle two-thirds of the book. And then we get to the fall of the kingdom. So we get to chapter 8, 2 Kings chapter 8, and we kind of see things go more downhill from here, okay? So from this point, the narrative is just going to switch back and forth between kings in Israel and, and kings in Judah. And Israel, the nation as a whole, but primarily, 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 if we're thinking about the northern kingdom, their biggest problem was they did not they were not devoted wholly to the worship of Yahweh, right? They were idolaters, okay? So what we see in the remainder of the book is what happens when Yahweh's judgment falls on a nation for their, for their disobedience. Um, so we get to chapter 8, verse 16. We see Jehoram. He is reigning in Judah. He is a wicked king walking in the ways of Israel. If you're a king in Judah and you're being compared to the kings of Israel, that's not a good thing. Um, look at chapter 8 and verse 19. Again, you see a, an, an important covenantal verse. Um, and this is important because in Judah, even as a wicked king is ruling, walking in the ways of the kings of Israel, the Lord is still uh, blessing his people and preserving and not tearing uh, that line apart because of the, the faithfulness made, or that covenant made with David all the way back in, in 2 Samuel. Um, in chapter 9, we see G- Jehu. He's an important, important figure that is introduced. He is raised up by the Lord to be a, a, an instrument of judgment uh, against the house of Ahab. You'll, you'll see, if you go and read the accounts of these kings, the Lord will raise up one king to bring judgment on the prior house. Right to wipe out all the house of uh, whatever, well, like Jeroboam, right? One king comes in and he destroys all the descendants of Jeroboam. Well, here comes Jehu, and his job is to raise judgment, or to execute judgment against the house of Ahab. See that in chapter 9, verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me, I need a drink. I'm talking too much, so I should probably stop. Um, look at chapter 10 and verse 28. You see an evaluation of Jehu. He is made king after destroying the the descendants of of Ahab, but he does not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. He continues to practice uh, the the golden calf worship. Um, He is not a devoted worshiper of Yahweh. Um, Then you get to a number of other kings after that. So you have... um, down in Judah, you get to Athalia. So in chapter 11, Athalia was uh, a wicked woman. She was the mother of Ahaziah, who we see back in chapter 8. Ahaziah was killed by Jehu, and Athalia comes in and she uh, wipes out all of Ahaziah's sons, she thinks, because uh, she wants to have the throne for herself, but the Lord preserves the son Joash or Jehoash. You see that in chapter 11. And uh, he is preserved through the ministry of Jehoiada the priest, and he is made to be king. Um, then we get to, oh, you have the list. You can just go, go read 
read, on, read all of those. We won't look at them for time's sake. Get to uh, chapter 17. This is an important chapter. We see all the kings of Israel... Some of them have more space devoted than others, but it's pretty rapid succession. You'll see a couple of them. One, one dude only is king for a week, right? And then he's knocked off. Others are like two or three years, not long reigns, uh, and they're, they're being murdered. And every single one of them, they did what was evil. There's not a single king in, in Israel that does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Not one that walks in the ways of David. They all walk... Um, uh, except the last king, Hosea in 17.1, says that he did not do as much evil as the kings before him. So, yeah, not, still not the, the ascription that you want assigned to you. But anyway, chapter 17 is important. Um, Hosea is the last king of the northern tribes. The northern kingdom has continually, from the day that it has been established, has rebelled against the Lord. And so in chapter 17, they finally are carried into captivity. Uh, the Assyrians, so the Assyrians think about Jonah, right? Jonah was, went to Nineveh, that was Assyria. So that was the, the world power at that time. They come against the northern tribes and they take them out of the land. They carry, the way, carry them away into captivity. And then starting in chapter 17, verse 7, the author of Kings is giving us a theological perspective on this historical event. Why are the northern kingdoms, uh, every single tribe except for Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, are gone? They, they're no longer in their land. Uh, the land is going to be resettled by foreigners. Uh, why has this happened? So he says, all and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Right? So here's why. Why is nobody living? Why are no Jews living in this land? Well, because they disobeyed the Lord, because they fell into idolatry. Um, notice also, though, in chapter 17, verse 19, there's a judgment against Judah at this point, too. Judah is still in their land. Jerusalem is still the capital. They're still being ruled by a descendant of David. But what it says in chapter 19 is, or in, in, uh, in, starting in 1719, they didn't learn the lesson they needed to learn from the exile of Israel. And so soon they're going to face the same judgment as well. Um, so then when we move into chapter 18, we now don't have any switch back and forth, right, between Judah and Israel. We only have one kingdom remaining, and it is now Judah. We are introduced to Hezekiah, who is a good king, a godly king, um, who, doesn't do, who does what is right. Um, what does it say? 18.3, uh, he did what was right. Let's see, you know, where is that? Oh, verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Right? So here's a really good king, um, a godly king, Hezekiah. Then we get to Manasseh, his son. And Manasseh, if Hezekiah is the godliest king, Manasseh is like the worst. He is a really bad dude. Uh, he's practicing child sacrifice. Um, horrible abominations. And so we get to uh, what we see in, in, in the life of Manasseh is because of his sin, the Lord says, I'm going to kick you out, right? My, my 
uh, forbearance has run its course, now you will receive judgment and, and will be removed from, from the land. Okay? So Manasseh was really bad. Then we get to Ammon in 21.19. He did what was evil as his father Manasseh had done. And then we get to Josiah. And Josiah is another a, a good king. So you almost have in these final years like moments of reprieve, right? where the Lord's judgment is graciously delayed by good and godly kings. Hezekiah, Josiah. Uh, Josiah, right, under his, uh, well, he was the other boy king. Jo- Joash was the one. Josiah, the other, becomes king at eight years old. Under his ministry, the, the, the law is found. The, the Torah was lost. They find it in the, the temple. He hears it and goes, oh man, the judgment of God is upon us for we have not obeyed all the words of this law. So he reinstitutes the worship practices, restores the worship of the temple, uh, reestablishes the Passover and observing that had not been observed for a long time in Israel. So he was, he was a good king. Uh, but you'll see in 23, uh, 26 through 27, uh, that his reforms could not stop the judgment of the Lord. It only delayed it, right? It's still the judgment of the Lord is coming. Um, and then we get to Jehoaz. He's an evil king. We see him taken captive by Pharaoh Necho, um, and he dies in Egypt. So he is supposed to be paying tribute to him, uh, and he is, he is taken captive. And then we get Jehoiakim in 2336. He's the brother of Josiah, so he is made king by Necho, uh, ruling over, over there. Um, he is a, a bad king. Um, he becomes the servant of Babylon, but rebels against them. And the, the kingdom starts to, to fall apart and be destroyed under his reign because of the sins of, of Manasseh. Then we get to Jehoi- Jehoiachin, right? So you got Jehoiakim, Jehoiachim. All these, we're having a baby, right, in July. So I keep suggesting these names to Jenna and she keeps shooting down. I don't know why. It's no good name sense, right? Jehoiachin, he's important. We're going to touch on him more in a minute. He is also evil. He is the son of Jehoiakim. Under his reign, he is captured and he is carried off into Babylon. So uh, if you think about when Israel, the northern kingdom is captured, they're captured, they're taken captive by the Assyrians. So think Jonah and Nineveh. Then when, when Judah is captured, they're taken captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and they are now the dominant world power. And then they will later be conquered by the Medes and the Persians, which we will get to when we talk about like Esther and uh, Nehemiah and that, that time period. Okay, So Jehoiachin is taken captive. He is taken to Babylon and the nation, the, the, the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem is more uh, under the control of the Babylonians. So we have a puppet king set up, Zedekiah. His name was originally Mataniah. He is the uncle of Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. And he is placed as the ruler over uh, Jerusalem. But he uh, is ultimately, uh, I believe he rebels. <coughs> Excuse me. And under him, under his rule, Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem and completely destroys the city. So the temple is destroyed. The gates will be burned with fire. So when we get to like Jeremiah and Lamentations, right? this is what we're thinking about. So when, when the, the writer of Lamentations is lamenting the fallen city, this is what he's talking about, okay? this, this time period. So uh, you think about 
all the descriptions of like Solomon's house, the temple, the glory. Um, I think it's under Hezekiah. There were a, and Chronicles will detail a number of building projects that were undertaken. It's a beautiful place. It's all gone. It's all destroyed. There's nothing really left. So at the end of, of 2 Kings, Judah and Israel, you have these two kingdoms are defeated. Both of them have been removed from the land. There's nobody left living in the land. Um, the anticipation, that, that hope and the promise made to Abraham of God's people living in this new Eden, uh, living as God's covenant people, uh, all of that kind of seems like a dream. But at the end of the book, there is hope. Look at 25, 27. Um, and in the 37th year of the exile, okay, so the exile is going to go for 70 years, is what we will see. For, for 70 years, Israel will be in exile. And, and when we get to Isaiah, and he will talk about the decree. The, well, Isaiah will prophesy that Cyrus will release the people. They'll be in captivity for 70 years, and that happens exactly as the Lord said it would. But look at uh, 2527. And in the 37th year of the exile, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his robe, put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So Jehoiachin is a king in the line of David, still alive right? He's still, he's in Babylon. He's given a good name. He's given a seat. He's given prominence. Uh, if you're reading uh, Stephen Dempster's Dominion and Dynasty, he really spends a lot of time on this and explaining the, the significance of this. But for, for our purposes, the significance is if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you look at Jesus's genealogy that Matthew brings out here, um, we can trace, and Matthew does this for us, a definite line from Adam to David to Jehoiachin to Jesus, right? So the significance of him being preserved is that. Um, in Matthew 1, I think it's in yeah, verse 11, we see, well, verse 10, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, that's Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, another name given for him. And you notice there's a couple of generations skipped in there. But isn't it significant and unique that this exiled king in Babylon is in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. The Lord preserves that line because of his covenant made to Abraham and his covenant made to David. And through him comes, comes ultimately Jesus. So uh, th- this is important, right? If we think about it, these books are, they're historical information, right? We have documentable historical data, but more importantly than that, it's got a redemptive theme, right? Is where ultimately this lands us at Jesus. If Jehoiachin dies, right, what happens? But instead he's given a name and a place and he's seen as a king. Ultimately God is moving his purposes forward, his covenant still he's faithful to it, uh, as he is to the covenant with David, covenant to Abraham. And then we know he's faithful to the covenant we have entered into with him right, in the new covenant. And that's good news.